My name is Keith Beavers, and sometimes I just think to myself, like, Keith, like, why can't you get into Wes Anderson films? What's going on, wine lovers? Welcome to episode 28 of Vine Pairs Wine 101 podcast. My name is Keith Beavers. It's season two. And how are you? That rhymed. I don't know if you guys are familiar with the 100-point wine scoring system, but it's one of... Oh, let's just... It's just... We have to... We gotta talk about it. This episode of Wine 101 is sponsored by E&J Gallo Winery. At Gallo, we exist to serve enjoyment in moments that matter. The hallmark of our company has always been an unwavering commitment to making quality wine and spirits. Whether it's getting barefoot and having a great time, making everyday sparkle with La Marca Prosecco, or continuing our legacy with Louis Martini in Napa, we want to welcome new friends to wine and share in all of life's moments. Interested in trying some of the wine brands discussed on Wine 101? Follow the link in each episode description to purchase featured wines or browse our full portfolio at BarrelRoom.com. Cheers and all the best. Wow. Scoring wine. What's that about? (laughs) You know? Like, people make wine and scores are applied to those wines by random people. And then you go out into the world and you look at the scores and you buy, not all of us, but some of us buy wine based on scores. That's crazy, right? I mean, the thing is, buying wine, buying anything with scores today is sort of what we do. You know, we, we want to go to a restaurant. We look for, f- for at least four and a half stars, right, guys? And we're not, what are we doing with three and a half? What are we doing with that? You know, when you're on Amazon and you're looking up uh, something you want to buy, especially if it's something a little more expensive, you're reading the reviews. You're hoping that that item is at least four and a half stars, right, guys? I mean, what's a three and a half star thing? So, <laughs> so we're kind of used to this whole scoring thing. We, we also, we have, you know, we, we read online, there's a lot of roundups. We have them on, on, on Vine Pair. What are the best of this, the best of that? We rank things. It's easy. It's fun. It's kind of shorthand. It's like, cool, help me, just help me figure this out so I can go and do this. I'll get into it more in depth later, but right now I just need a score. And that's cool. I mean, that's just how our, how, how our world works. And in the wine world, this sort of like the literature of wine has been going on since antiquity. And back in the day, all the way up until like the 19th century, it was really mostly about agriculture. People writing about wine, when they weren't really scoring wine, they were talking about wines they may have liked. Even back in the day, Pliny the Elder in the Roman era, the the ancient Roman era, he would write about wines that he liked from different parts of Italy. Um, But a lot of the work being done in literature back in the day was more about the vine, the vineyard, maybe even viticulture, just stuff like that, regions. Of course, all that was mostly in Europe. For the United States, though, from, from, from colonization all the way through to prohibition, there was a lot of wine literature <laughs> being pumped out. It was chaotic, unorganized, and people trying to figure out how to make wine in the United States was an absolute, sometimes a nightmare. It was really crazy. So that stuff is really mostly just about, you know, what wines work. 
it wasn't until the 1960s when the United States started realizing, oh, wine that's not sweet like we had in Prohibition is actually good. We like dry red wine with a little bit of acidity and structure and all this stuff. As we started learning how to drink wine again, a lot of literature would come out to help us enjoy wine. Books on wine etiquette and how to throw a wine party and this misunderstood science of how you understand aromas and flavors. And as we saw Napa rise, before even the Judgment of Paris and before it became its own American viticultural area, there was great things happening in Napa. It's one of the reasons why the Judgment of Paris happened. And in, in Napa and Sonoma, there were people there helping the people who live there enjoy wine. One of the most well-known is Robert Finnegan. He was in the story I told last, uh, last week, The Judgment of Paris. And so there were people out there helping Americans enjoy wine. But it wasn't until the 100-point system was applied to wine in the United States that things got crazy. And that is because of one man, Robert M. Parker Jr., if you're not familiar with that name, this is one of our premier, our first real sort of celebrity wine critic who became nationally and internationally famous for his writing about wine and this scoring thing with wine. It got to the point where a score from Robert Parker could define the price of your wine. And I guess his story has a sort of I'm not sure if it's a humble beginning, but it's, you know, very typical American Eastern Seaboard kind of story where he was born outside of, born and raised outside of Baltimore, or if you're, if you're from the DMV, Baltimore, Maryland. And he became a lawyer in Baltimore, or Baltimore. And at the age of 20, he tried his first wine. I believe it was at law school. And he fell in love with wine. And this kind of started his whole love for wine. Like we all do, you know, y'all, you, you taste wine for the first time. Like, oh my gosh. And you start working your way through wine, trying to understand it, listening to wine 101. You know how it goes. And as he practiced law, he was able to explore wines. He was, he actually went to Europe at one point and uh, enjoyed, you know, Bordeaux and Burgundy and stuff like that. But in, this is just so fascinating because this is like Robert Parker was around at the right time doing what he was doing because as we've talked about in the past few episodes when it comes to American wine history this moment in the 19 late 60s and the early 70s this was sort of a catalyst moment for us and the timing here is just it's crazy he um, was falling more in love with wine but still practicing law but he was getting very frustrated with the lack of independent and reliable criticism about wine he wanted to read more tasting notes than guides to where to go. And there's a story I read in the mid-70s when he was at dinner with one of his friends. And maybe it was a lawyer friend, I'm not really sure. But this friend was fascinated with the fact, or just the uh, Robert Parker's ability to assess wine, and said, hey, you know, you should be doing this full-time instead of law. And I don't know if that was the conversation that made it happen, but Robert Parker was thinking about launching his own buyer's guide. So he said, you know, if people can't do it, I'm going to do it right. So he decides to launch this newsletter bi-monthly called The Wine Advocate. And it was his way of just dissecting wines. This guy wrote very copious tasting notes. I mean, he went down to like some serious detail. And 
1978, the first newsletter goes out. What happened here is, I guess nobody really knew how hungry Americans were to understand wine. Because by 1984, the wine advocate was doing well enough that he could retire from law and have this be his full-time gig. And now it was time to really make a name for himself. And I don't know if he planned this or not, but he did a extremely detailed breakdown and description of the 1982 vintage of Bordeaux to the point where it really got the attention of the French. And it prompted him to actually release a wine advocate in French. And that blew up. By 1998, the wine advocate had 45,000 subscribers from all over the world mainly the U.S. and France, but I think it was like 30-plus other countries people were subscribing to this. People wanted to know about wine, and right now, at that point, he was the only voice doing it. Now, Robert Parker wasn't the only one with a newsletter in the United States. There were hundreds of them, I'm sure, and there were some that were probably very influential to their communities. But Robert Parker was on an international level at this point, and there was something about his newsletter that was different than everybody else's. He was the first to apply scores to wines. And this is why it became such a big deal. He designed the 100-point scoring system that he used for wine off of the United States high school grading system, which started from 50 at the lowest all the way up to 100. Every American could understand that point system. So this is the thing. He would give points to wines, and mostly it was Bordeaux, and then some American wines, but he was really fascinated with Bordeaux. He, what he did was the scores he applied to wines, he did not believe was the major part of the entries of his newsletter. He was, he's quoted as, well, he was, I'll paraphrase here. He really wanted people to use the point as a supplement to the tasting notes. This guy wrote, I mean, again, very detailed tasting notes about wine. And he wanted that to be the feature of his newsletter, not the points. But this is at a time in America where we were, again, very hungry for wine knowledge. And if we're hungry for wine knowledge and we're at a modern era where distribution and importation is now a thing, wine reps selling to retail stores and restaurants started to rely on these points very heavily because the wines that that Robert Parker was writing about were not your everyday wines. These were fine wines or wines with, you know, built to age. The thing about the wine advocate, and one of the reasons why it was so respected beyond the tasting notes and the scores and all that, was there were no ads. It was, it was just wine information cover to cover with no distractions. But as people noticed how successful the scoring thing could be, they started applying it to their own ventures. For example, Marvin Schenken, who created Wine Spectator, which I think started as a newsletter but quickly became a magazine, started using the 100-point system for scoring wines their own way. And there were there that that's a magazine. There are advertisements there. And that's where the capitalism started like really churning out. And this idea of scores in wine started to, to, to really define what people looked for in wine. They didn't look for 
what was inside the bottle so much as they looked for the score to tell them that they're going to like what's inside the bottle. And they assumed that the higher the score, the better the wine, which is true, but there was really no indication as to their personal preference in that score. And that's the, that's, that's the capper, that's, that's the twist with numerical scores to denote the quality of a wine. And that led to some controversy. For example, Hugh Johnson, who's a very famous wine writer in the UK and wine critic, said, you're going to apply a score to a wine that's going to age, so it's going to change. And are you going to then apply a score later on? And how do you correlate that score that you apply later on with the earlier score? It's a mess. This doesn't work. But Robert Parker didn't see wine that way specifically. There was a quote on the cover of his newsletter that says, Wine is no different from any consumer product. There are specific standards of quality that full-time wine professionals recognize. So obviously, he was approaching wine with this very calculated effort. And someone like Hugh Johnson had a more sense of where a wine is going and that it's an, it's, more, it's, a, it's an active thing. It's not just a snapshot in time wine. Also, Robert Parker really loved Bordeaux and actually also really enjoyed deep, dark, fuller-bodied red wines. He was mostly a red wine critic. And he ended up doing a lot of his literary work in Bordeaux and in the Rhone. It got to the point that his influence was so great that winemakers in France and Italy, the United States and Spain and beyond would make wines so that he would actually like them and get big scores so those scores could get them sales. And even though Robert Parker wanted the scores to be a supplement to his very detailed notes, it, this system was just too easy. It was just too good. And it, it, this became the standard. A score on wine defined its price, its popularity, its reputation, and all that. And other publications like The Wine Spectator and eventually The Wine Enthusiast, they applied scores as well. And the game just kind of, that's what the game became. It was a score thing. And today, scores are still very popular. They're not the standard that they once were, but they still have influence. I believe The Wine Advocate morphed into erobertparker.com, which is his website. And in 2012... He sold that entire site to a Singapore ex-wine merchant for $1.5 million. So he retired. But his idea never did. And to this day, scores are still applied to wine. So we have to talk about that. What does it mean when a score is applied to wine? And how do you figure that out? One of the cool reasons why scoring is not as popular as it once was is because these days we the American drinking culture are more interested in the stories behind the wines than we are just about applying a calculated score to a wine. And tasting notes are also very important to us, but the language of tasting notes is a whole other thing. We go over that in, in previous episodes, of course. But there's something nice about a point. It's a number. It's, it's, it's quick. It's easy to understand. It's very shorthand. If you trust the person who's giving the score... You trust the score. It's, it's also something that transcends you know, all languages. It's a number. Everyone knows 93. Everyone knows what a 94 is. 
but no matter how calculated a point is supposed to be to be applied to a wine, it's a very arbitrary thing. So how do you trust a score applied to a wine, knowing you're going to spend some money on a wine? Every 100-point system is very similar, but every one is actually different from one another. Every system is created independently to and designed for that particular publication or entity to kind of get their message across. At VinePair, we've actually created our own 100-point scoring system with our own levels and tiers and how we think a 100-point system should be applied to when we review wines. I'm the one, I'm, I'm the, being the tasting director of VinePair, I'm the one that does all the tasting and all the reviewing. And so using that system that we developed helps me get my message across to you guys based on how VinePair sees a certain wine. And that's kind of where the 100-point system exists today. It's kind of like a, like a movie critic. You know, when you want to see a movie, I don't know about you, but I have certain movie or film critics that I like to read before I see a movie because I often agree with what they say. This is similar to the 100-point wine scoring system. You go to a wine shop or whatever, and you see a point that point is given to that wine by somebody. If you feel like, if you're familiar with that somebody and you like the way that somebody talks about wine, you're probably going to go ahead and look at that number and choose to buy the bottle of wine based on that person giving that wine that number. If you see a number from another wine critic that you may not know, you may not get the wine, or you may get it anyway, but not you know, take into account the score. But that's kind of how it works these days because wine is so much more than one point, but it's a really good kind of quick reference point for you if you know who's actually giving the point and agree with that person's taste in wine. And even though these numbers can seem a little bit arbitrary, and they are kind of arbitrary and they are kind of subjective because we're just one person's palate or a panel of palates making a, you know, a decision on a, on a wine and a score... But what's really cool is every website has their 100-point system with their criteria so you can see why they've chosen what they've chosen. At VinePair, we have it. We have our 100-point system in categories, and we have the whole we have it all explained for you. So if you look at a wine on VinePair that I've reviewed and given a score to, you can go and look at that link to see why where it is in the scale of why I said what I said. So that's a little bit of history there, a little bit of application, a little bit of sort of evolution and where we are today with this 100-point wine scoring system. I don't think it's going to go anywhere for a very long time. And even though today stories and backgrounds are so much more enjoyable than, a, than a, just a, a cold, hard score, <laughs> that score will always help us sort of in a pinch if we trust the person giving the score. Find Parakeet is my Insta. Rate and review this podcast wherever you get your podcasts from. It really helps get the word out there. And now for some totally awesome credits. Wine 101 was produced, recorded, and edited by yours truly, Keith Beavers, at the VinePair headquarters in New York City. I want to give a big old shout-out to co-founders Adam Teeter and Josh Mallon for creating VinePair. And I mean big shout-out to Danielle Grinberg, the art director of VinePair, for creating the most awesome logo for this podcast. Also, Darby Seaside for the theme song. Listen to this. And I want to thank the entire VinePair staff for helping me learn something new every day. See you next week. 
This episode of Wine 101 is sponsored by E&J Gallo Winery. At Gallo, we exist to serve enjoyment in moments that matter. The hallmark of our company has always been an unwavering commitment to making quality wine experience. Whether it's getting barefoot and having a great time, making everyday sparkle with La Marca Prosecco, or continuing our legacy with Louis Martini in Napa, we want to welcome new friends to wine and share in all of life's moments. Interested in trying some of the wine brands discussed on Wine 101? Follow the link in each episode description to purchase featured wines or browse our full portfolio at barrelroom.com. Cheers and all the best.